Good morning to all of you. Good to see all of you. I am not Travis, in case any of you are wondering. Um, Travis is in Arizona with his family this week, um, and so I get the honor and privilege of bringing the Word of God before us um, this morning. Before we get started, one quick housekeeping matter. If you are here and you are a guest with us, you can either text the number on the screen, text welcome to the number on the screen, or there's a card in the back that you can fill out. Uh, old school, new school, whatever you want to do, we're here for you. So um, if you'd be so kind to do that for us, uh, we'd just like to follow up with you and get to know you a little bit. So, um, For those of you who haven't been with us, we are working our way through the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. Um, Travis finished Acts chapter 2 last week, um, and so we'll pick up in Acts chapter 3 this morning. If you want to be turning there, a um, couple of, of quick notes on context before we jump into actually reading the passage. Um, so Acts chapter 2, um, the Spirit has descended at Pentecost. Um, as Peter is preaching to the crowd, there are 3,000 people that respond in faith to the message of the gospel. Um, chapter 2 finishes with uh, the, the assembling of a, of a church together, a common unity of believers in fellowship together. Um, and Travis has spent the last few weeks um, unpacking the different elements of what that fellowship looked like, um, the things they shared in common, the, the worship that they experienced together, um, and all of those common, common elements. Um, today we're going to be in Acts 3, um, and it's a recounting of, of Peter and John. They're coming to the temple, going about uh, kind of the normal cultural life um, of two men during that day. Um, and, and then there's a miracle that occurs, and then, then Peter takes um, the, the opportunity to preach the gospel again um, in the temple. So that's where we'll be today. Um, before we read the word, um, I want to pray for us one more time. Ask that you pray for me as I pray for you as we approach the word of God um, humbly this morning. Father, we, we love you. We thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the, the kind gift that you give us in your word. We, Father, we ask this morning that as we, we approach your word, as we open your word, that you would give us clarity of mind, um, that we would not be hard soil that chokes out um, your message of truth and of love and of goodness to us. But God, we ask that we would be fertile soil that, that hears your word and that allows it to take root in our hearts. Um, Father, we ask that, that as we come here this morning filled with all, all the different cares of life, different specifics, different challenges for all of us, but undoubtedly all facing um, things that would seek to distract us from the truth of who you are. Father, we, we ask that you quiet our souls, that you quiet our spirits, um, that you allow us to focus on you and who you are and the glory um, of your work, both here in Acts as well in our, as in our own lives. Father, we ask that as we open your word now, that you reveal your truth to us, um, that your spirit would be with us as we um, expound your word and see what it has for us this morning. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. So let's start in Acts chapter 3. Um, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. Um, I was joking with some folks earlier. Uh, Travis got to take three weeks on five verses, and now I get <laughs> one week for a whole chapter. So um, here we are. So chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, the only significance of the ninth hour is this is a time when the temple would have been crowded. Um, so culturally during that time, um, Jews were giving 
morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices. This would have been during the evening sacrifice time. So the temple's crowded. There's a lot of people there. Um, this is not an empty room that Peter and John are walking into. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive an alm, to receive alms. So there's a beggar, he's lame, he's laying at the gate asking for assistance um, daily. And this is someone who's known to everyone who's coming to the temple. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So understand this picture a little more. There, there's a man well known to those who come to the temple to worship and offer sacrifices. Peter and John entering the temple through the work of Christ healed this man, and he goes bounding into the temple. So the temple is a fairly serious place, right? Like this is not this is not a party. And here goes this man who everyone knows cannot walk is now walking and is causing a ruckus in the temple as he is praising God in the temple. So you can imagine, this is, not a, this is not a quiet, docile scene. There's probably some irritated people. Definitely everybody's asking what in the world is going on. Like, A of all, this guy was just laying outside, and B of all, why is he so loud? All the people gathered, saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this miracle has, has essentially gathered a crowd for Peter. There's these people that have just clearly seen this miracle occur. Their response is, is wonder and amazement. Like, wow, what just happened? Like, we pass this guy every day. And now here he is, and he's praising God. What's happening here? So Peter seizes the moment. Starting in verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. This is what Peter says. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So hearkening back, Peter has this understanding culturally of who he's talking to. I mean, these are Peter's people. Like this is where Peter lives. He's going about the culture of the day. He's in the temple at the time when all the people are in the temple. He knows the, the history of Christ's interaction with Pilate, which would have been very well known to this audience and, and Peter's bringing this to him, saying, the, the God who has been faithful to us, the God who gave the Abrahamic covenant, that same God who has been faithful through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even unto Christ, that very God is the one that you have turned your back on. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, referring to the beggar who was just healed, whom you see and know, 
and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter continues on. So, so Peter's just kind of scolded the crowd, right? Like, <laughs> in case you forgot, you killed the man who was sent to save you. But there's hope. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It's an uncomfortable truth there that we'll wrestle with here in a bit. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That phrase, restoring all things, we'll dive into a little bit more later. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So, so Peter is very much playing to his audience here. These are people that are very familiar with the covenant made to Abraham. And, and, and Peter is playing to that. He's saying, remember the words spoken to Abraham, that through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Peter draws, the, draws his crowd into it and says, the way that that's occurring is through the gift of Jesus Christ. Um, this is a crowd that, that would not have been uh, would not have been enlightened, would not have had the work of the Spirit in their hearts to know that Christ was that way and Christ was that fulfillment of that covenant. And so Peter's drawing them into that understanding. Okay, so that's the text. That's Acts chapter 3. Um, anytime, anytime I preach, I always want to answer three questions. One, what's the text say or what is the story about? Two, what is that... What, what does that text mean? Like, as we expound it, what, what cultural implications, what personal implications does that text have for us here in 2022? And then finally, what does that mean for us as we go out that door? So as we leave that door, so what? So what that a man was healed 2,000 years ago at a temple? So what that Peter preached in a portico? Who cares? Um, so that's, that's what we're going to try to do. We want to make sure we accurately understand the text, we want to understand what the text means, sitting here in 2022, and then we want to say, so what? Why does it matter? Story's pretty simple. Um, Peter and John walking into the temple, through the work of the Spirit, heal a lame man. Lame man runs into the temple, um, causes a commotion, crowd gathers, and Peter preaches to the crowd. Uh, very simple story, nothing, nothing too complicated there to unpack. Um, with that said... There, there, there's a lot of themes throughout this passage um, that you, you could spend days unpacking. Um, you've got everything from humility to dependence to repentance to glorification to redemption. Um, you could chase any one of those, those topics and, and spend days exploring the fullness of what those mean. Um, but we're going to focus on a few of them um, here this morning. 
So let, let's start first with the miracle. So as we unpack kind of themes in the miracle, what are some things that we need to draw our attention to? The, the first is that the, the, the basis of this miracle, both the miracle in, of the, in the healing of the lame man as well as the miracle of the gospel later in the, in the chapter, is this basic understanding of the, the humility of man. Um, so, so man, in, in response to who God is, in response to the holiness of God, should see themselves as, as broken, as needy. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no lost coincidence here that the, the man that is healed by Peter and John is a beggar. Um, that, that's very intentional to help us draw out into ourselves to realize that we are, in fact, the same. That, that we, are not, we are not people who, who are good, who are whole. We are the lame man who has to be put at the gate every single day to ask for favor and to ask for sustenance from other people. That's who we are. Um, and you see it echoed in what Peter says as well. Look, at, look in verse uh, 6 with me. Peter's addressing the beggar, and he says, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So here's this recognition from Peter that he has nothing. Um, there, there's two truths there. A, Peter was likely physically poor. Um, he was not a man of, of means, especially at this point in his life. Um, but there's also the spiritual component that he realizes that he owns nothing and that there's nothing that he can give this, this poor beggar that will be of any consequence other than the person of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon is famous, um, and you've heard this quoted here before, famous for saying that, um, that essentially there, there, there are no good people but we are all just beggars in need of bread. Um, and that is very much what Peter is enforcing, that the message of what Peter is preaching here to this crowd is that, you know, look, look back, crowd, at what you've done. You killed the very man that came to save you. And he's establishing this basis that we see throughout all of Scripture that we are broken and that we are in need of help and that we are in need of a Savior. The good news, after establishing that, is that the, the person of Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, through the work of the Spirit, you, you can see the, the Trinitarian truth here, as you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all at work in this passage. The, the good news is that, that for us, as we humbly approach God, is we're not approaching a God who, who keeps us at an arm's distance. We're not approaching a God who left us in our hopelessness, but we're approaching a God who, who sent his very son to die for us. Now, I think it's easy, especially in the second part of the passage, when we see a crowd who, who would have been responsible for the killing of the Son of God to say, well, we would have never done that. And the truth is, we would have done that, and likely much worse. Um, but yet again, God perseveres, God loves, God maintains. God, God is, is, is reaching out to us to reconcile a broken relationship. The beggar is the same thing. You have a man here who is worthy of nothing. He's there, somebody brings him there, they lay him there. He's not a man of means, he has nothing to offer. But Peter and John look on him with compassion and the work of Christ enters his life 
and, and the natural response to, to healing, be it spiritual, be it physical, is this overwhelming joy. And that's what we see with this man. This overwhelming joy causes him to jump up in a place of solemn quiet and go running in the temple praising God. There, there's a lot that you could, you could pull out from that, but I think the thing for us to keep in mind is that as we interact and as we remind ourselves that we are the beggar in need of bread, and that as we remind ourselves that we have been redeemed to something greater than what we could have imagined, that our natural response should be this same type of praise. Intriguingly enough, you, you have these people gathered in the temple going about their, their cultural and, and somewhat spiritual duties of the day, and you have them filled, at the end of verse 10 there, filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So this is not, a, this is not an event that these people would have quickly forgotten. Um, think, think of any time you've been filled with wonder and amazement. Um, there's probably not many times in your life that you could point to when that's been the case. But when it does happen, you don't forget it. It stays with you. It sticks with you. And so you can start to see this, this narrative, this pattern unfolding. The brokenness of man, the need of man, the love and the grace of God, the, the healing, physical, spiritual healing, the praising of God, and then the wonder of God. And you see it all throughout Scripture. Like, this is not unique to Acts 3. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work of God amongst mankind, recognition of brokenness, intervention of God, spiritual healing, worship and praise, and the wonder of all peoples. That's scripture. And you see it in a miracle, and then you see Peter preach it again in the Solomon's portico. Moving down to, to Peter's actual words, his actual message to, to the crowd, he, uh, he starts in quite a, an insulting manner. Um, so so the, these are Jews. These are God's chosen people. These are people that they know their covenants. They know their promises. They know their Old Testament. They know their Torah. They are at the temple doing all that is culturally and spiritually required of them. This is not a biblically um, ignorant crowd. These folks, these folks know what they're doing. And he comes to them. And he's essentially, Peter is saying, remind yourselves that all, even out of all of this knowledge, all of this good practice that you do, it, it means nothing. Like, remember, remember the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That same God is the one who sent this man to save you, and you killed him. And you, 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 can, you can imagine if you're standing there, and you, you've likely been told or have, have seen and witnessed and felt the indignation of this man who says he can rebuild the temple in three days, insulting your very religious and cultural beliefs. And then here's a man coming to you and saying, remember, remember the promises that you've been waiting to be fulfilled? Yeah, that was the guy, and you killed him. Peter doesn't stop there. He hearkens back to the trial with Pilate. Pilate gives the crowd an option. They choose the murderer over Christ. And Peter just reminds and continues to remind the crowd of their brokenness. Now, this, this seems uncomfortable. Uh, and certainly it probably was. Um, this is Peter. These are Peter's people. 
These are the men of Israel. These are fellow Jews. And he's essentially standing in front of them in their place of worship and telling them they've been doing it all wrong. Which is, is, is not only insulting, but is likely... There could have been significant implications to Peter, especially seeing what happened to Jesus when he did the same types of things. But I think it's important for us to realize that, that as Peter is, is bringing this recognition to the people, the goal is not for Peter to say, hey, look, I'm right. Like, you fools killed this man. That's not Peter's tone. Peter's tone and Peter's goal is to engage his, his fellow Jews for the sake of their redemption. But they can't ever get to the point of redemption if they don't understand their need for a Savior. And so I think there's a key note for us there as we seek to engage the culture around us. The goal is never for us to be right. Who cares if we're right? We're probably not right. We're probably wrong. But at the end of the day, we, we have to expose the, the fallenness, the shortcomings of our fellow man for their own good. We can't let, we can't let our, our fellow man continue to walk out the totality of their life thinking that everything's fine when it's not. I mean, you, you would not let a friend, you, you would not let a brother, a sister, a family member, you would not let them continue to walk in a way that was destructive over an extended period of time without helping them come to, the, doing your best to help them come to the realization that they need help. That's what Peter's doing here. He's not coming to the temple in pride. He's not coming to prove a point. He's coming to say, hey, you, you, you need God. You, you need saving." If you want to see, if you want to see those covenants come true, if you want to see the Abrahamic covenant come true and through you all the nations be blessed, you have to first realize that you are broken, that you are desperately and hopelessly broken. Verse 17, <clears throat> Peter continues, and here he brings the good news to the gospel. Verse 18, God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, and he thus fulfilled. There's a very uncomfortable truth there. Um, essentially, Peter's point is, God said through the prophets that Christ would suffer, and you were the tools by which he suffered. There's a lot of dynamics that we could spend the next three hours unpacking in that, in that phrase. But what we need to take away is that, that God... God was not willing to spare the feelings of the crowd or even the life of his own son to stop the work of redemption. The work of redemption will go forward regardless. Even if that means the death of the very son of God. Peter then exhorts the, the crowd, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So you have this call to repentance. Now, remember, yet again, who Peter's speaking to. He's speaking to fellow Jews in the temple, very used to culturally living out the law. They know the law, they know the Torah, they, they, know, they know what is required of them, and they're, they're doing all of the religious things. But that's not 
That's not what Peter's message is here. Peter's message is not do more, offer more sacrifices. That's not his message. His message is one of repentance. And I think this is where we have to culturally be careful this day and age, is when we hear repentance, we think, try harder. You are morally not doing enough. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do better. I think culturally, that is, I love these microphones, you know. I had a, I had a pastor friend who always fiddled with these things and never understood it, and now I get it. Um, so you, uh, so you, um, you have this call to repentance, and I think culturally nowadays, at least most of the churches I grew up in, you get a little bit of Jesus and a lot of fix your life. Um, and that is the furthest thing from what Peter is calling his crowd to here. That this repentance that Peter is, is speaking of is an abandonment of, of old and of broken ways. It, it's, a, it's an abandonment of try harder to gain the favor of God. That this is a replacement. That this is a, a pulling out of all that these people know culturally to be true and replacing it in full faith and dependence upon I think as we, we engage the culture around us, we have to be careful that we're actually giving people the gospel. Um, we're actually calling them to repentance, with repentance being a, a, a turning away from ourselves and our failings towards a dependence upon God and his grace and his goodness and his work. And while that sounds easy, that sounds, it's like, oh, who doesn't want that? Like, all you got to do is put your faith in God. Like, woohoo. Um, the, the working out of that faith, the working out of that dependence is, is sanctification. And we know that sanctification is incredibly difficult. So difficult that we are incapable of doing it apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives. So let's not call our culture and our world to try harder, to do more things, to clean up their act. Let's call, let's call our culture to stop depending upon themselves, to stop making their own way, to stop trying to fix their own problems, and to lay their, their lives and their needs at the feet of King Jesus and depend upon his work and his goodness and his grace to bring about redemption. Verses 20 and 21, uh, Peter has these beautiful images uh, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And, he, and then he, he points to, to Christ returning to earth to restore all things. Uh, two passages that came to mind as I was, was working through um, Peter's, Peter's um, message here to the crowd. The end of Romans 8, Paul, Paul has just gone through this, this beautiful exposition of redemption and the gospel and, and how all of these pieces fit together. And, and hearing Paul or hearing Peter's words um, about the restoration of all things and the times of refreshing um, brought this passage to mind. This is Romans 8, verses 18 through 23. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So, so the, this redemption, all, all of the trials, all the tribulations, all the sufferings, it's, it's not just for our personal edification. It's not just so that we may commune with God. Will we commune with God? Absolutely. But, but the reason, the reason that we have been brought, that we have been redeemed, is what Paul says there, that the creation has been longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So through us, all of creation will be released from its bondage. So the, the narrative, the personal narrative about redemption that we often hear where you need to put your faith in Jesus so that you may have eternal life, that is absolutely true. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is all of creation is waiting for us to be revealed as the sons of God so that it may be set free from its bondage. Through Adam came bondage to all of creation. And through the son of Adam, Jesus Christ, redemption will come to all creation. Revelation 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible, and that chapter begins with this beautiful picture. John says, He showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the, midst of the street, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which had twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and there shall be no more night. There will be no need of a candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God provides the light and shall reign forever and ever. So this is the culmination of redemption. There's a tree of life, there's rivers running on either side of it, the throne, the glory of God is providing the light for all of mankind, and the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So all the brokenness that we experience personally in our families, in our society, in our world, wars, rumors of wars, struggle, financial difficulty, divorce, abuse, depression, you, all of that culminates here at the tree of life. And, and all of that curse, all of that scourge from Adam's sin will be wiped away. That's what Peter's calling this crowd to. He's not just saying, hey, clean up your act. Hey, you're not worshiping the right way. No, no, no. Peter's saying, expand your vision. Yes, you killed the Son of Man who was sent to save you, but that same God who sent that Son is offering you the chance to be part of the redemption of creation. For all of this sin and all of this struggle, you get to be part of bringing that to an end. You get to see the perfection of what God intended. Peter goes on, and he ends with one last appeal back to the, the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 25, it says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter makes one last appeal. 
We, we've taught, you, you've seen a man healed. You've seen, you've seen a living physical example of the work of the gospel. Broken man, intervention of God, healing, praising, wonder. You've seen a physical, physical example of it. Spiritually, we, we've talked about how God has been faithful through all of his covenants, how Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant. And he, he ends with, with this last reminder that, that God in his love and God in his grace sent Christ and then sent Peter and then sent John to these people on this day so that they may turn from their wickedness, that they may put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, fulfill that Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Christ, excuse me, God the Father with Abraham in Genesis, through you all the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all the way to Revelation 22. The tree of life leaves for the healing of the nations. No more curse, no more pain. And in the middle is Christ. In the middle is redemption. So Peter's calling this crowd into something more, into something bigger. It's not just about your personal piety. Peter even says that. Like, I have no piety to give you, beggar. It's not, it's not about personal uh, preservation. It's not about personal eternal life. It's about a story of redemption that we have been brought into. So the question is, so what? What what does this mean for us? We're going to leave here in a few minutes. We're going to go about our lives. Um, Something will happen this afternoon. Something will happen tomorrow morning that will frustrate us. Uh, that that will seek to to harden our soil and choke out the ministry of the Word of God. So what? Why does it matter? Why does it matter what Peter did and said 2,000 years ago? Two things come to mind. Two two ways in which we can cling tightly to the, the Word of God in Acts 3. And, and, and the first is for us to never stop preaching the gospel to ourselves. And what do I mean by that? I mean, first and foremost, we need to remind ourselves and we need fellow believers to remind us of our own brokenness. To remind us of where, where we started. To remind us of still the struggles that we have day in and day out. And just as Peter did, not, not, in, not in a way, not in a prideful way, but in a way to, to seek the good of our brothers and, and sisters. And the reason is that, that that reminder of who we are before a holy God will then immediately lead to a, a remembrance of who God is. That this is a God that despite all of that, despite how, how wicked and how broken and, and, and how painful we are, still saw fit to have his own son tortured and killed for our own redemption. And that, just as it did with the beggar, will produce in us worship. Worship through the singing of song, worship through an appreciation of who God is, worship through our service to our fellow man. But we have to remember who we are and what we've been redeemed from so that we may freely, freely worship. And then what do we see in this passage? What does worship lead? What does our worship lead to? It leads to wonder and amazement in the culture around us. We, we, we live in a day, we serve in a, in, in a church locally, in a church globally, that's wrestling with 
why can't we engage our culture? And I, I would submit to you that we cannot engage our culture because we do not adequately worship our God. We do not know who our God is. We do not appreciate what our God has done. And so the society around us says what they naturally should. Who cares? Clearly you don't. Until worship is the, is the, the heartbeat of what we do, until we are daily, hourly, recognizing our dependence upon God, repentance is what Peter calls it here, until we are those people and until our lives are overflowing in worship and overflowing in praise, we cannot expect the culture around us to see anything here of value. Because what value is there if we don't have that? First question, Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How many of us glorify God and enjoy Him, period? No wonder the world around us doesn't want to be here. Not just us. I mean, this is, this is a church issue. We've gotten so wrapped up in, in doing certain things and looking a certain way that we miss the point in a lot of cases. That point is a, is a, is a daily, hourly reminder of who we are our need for God, our need for spiritual healing, and our need for worship. I would submit to us that if we're, we're not worshiping individually as a church, as a, global, as a global church, that we've missed the point. John Piper says often, he says, missions exist because worship does not. And we, we, we come up with all sorts of fun ways to measure that. Churched, unchurched, reached, unreached, and all of those things are helpful but at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, is God being worshipped? All those statistics, all of those 2%, 5%, 6000000000 billion, it doesn't matter if God's not being worshipped. So I ask this of us. I ask that, that as, as, we, as we leave here, as we, we go about our lives and we, we, we love, love our families and work our jobs, ask that, that we remember the beggar, that we remember the crowd, and that we remember that we are the beggar and that we are the crowd, that we are broken and that we are in need of a Savior, and that God in his, his loving kindness and grace and goodness to us saw fit to save us. And, that, and as that, that realization comes to our mind day in and day out, moment by moment, that, that praise and worship be our song. It just naturally overflows from us. And as we do that, we know, I mean, look at the passage. We know that as we do that, that God is faithful to spread his redemption to the end of the earth. Revelation 22 is happening. There's nothing in this world that can stop Revelation 22 from becoming reality. The only question for us is, are, are we going to worship the God who's going to bring that reality about? Or are we not? Are we going to get easily distracted by our own desires, our own pursuits, our own fertility, our own shame? Are we going to worship freely the God who can bring all those things to pass? I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, we, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper together um, after I finish praying. Um, for those of you who are new, um, we do the Lord's Supper every single week uh, as an act of worship back to God. It's one of the ordinances that Christ gave us um, gave the early church. 
and when we take seriously that practice. Um, if, if you're new to the church, not really sure about all of this redemption talk and all of this craziness, um, we, we do ask that you would refrain from taking the elements. But if you're a believer and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please come, partake, um, worship with us as we do that this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for the grace that you show us in this passage, the, the, the grace that you, you poured out on a, on a poor beggar in need of help, the, the grace that you poured out on, on a crowd of Israelites gathered in, in wonder at your work, the, the grace that you showed Peter and John to be vessels of your work. Father, we, we humbly ask that we would not see ourselves more highly than we should. Father, we, we, we ask and we beg that we, we know you and we know who you are and we know your character clearly and that we understand that we are, we are broken and sinful and futile and that we are, we, we are elements and we are tools of the curse apart from you. Father, we, we ask that we, we have that realization and that it, it drive us in dependence upon you, that, that in those moments where we feel self-assured and self-reliant and sure of ourselves, that, that we would be reminded that we utterly need you in, in every way. We need you for, for every breath, for every thought, but we especially need you for our redemption. To, to be named a child of God. Father, we, we pray that, that that truth will bring worship to our lives. Not, not, in, a, not, in, not in the dutiful sense, but in the sense that, that we, we share the wonder and amazement that the crowd shows here at, the work of, at your work in our lives. And the natural result of that is that we go about freely worshiping and praising you. And Father, we, we ask as a result of that that your redemptive work continue, that, that for those around us in our culture and our society who do not worship you, that we will, we will be faithful to what you call us to do so that others may worship, and they may worship freely and with joy. Father, we, we look forward to Romans 8, to Revelation 22, when, when the sons of, of redemption, when the children of God are revealed and all of creation is made right and the curse is broken. <coughs> Father, we, we, we ask that we keep those things on our mind, that in moments of despair, in moments of trial, that we remember that we are a part of a much, much, much larger story. And that that story does not end today or with the trial in front of us or the struggle in front of us, but that ultimately all of those things will be made right. And that there is a, there is a tree of life that will be for the healing of the nations and that the curse will be broken and that your glory will provide light to the nations. Father, we love you. Thank you for your work among us. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you.